the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning in this Christology series, the preexistence of Jesus. And uh, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of John, we're going to be looking at different passages throughout the book of John. But uh, we'll begin this study of Jesus Christ. And too often, believers, we, we think about, even as a song portrayed, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which is literally that he took our place and died on our behalf because there had to be a penalty for sin. And so we can relate to someone who, who does something for us, that sacrifice. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a loved one. The Bible says rarely will another person die for another individual. So I don't think anyone, maybe unless you've been in the military, someone has given their life for you. But uh, the closest I can relate to is when I worked in the operating room is someone who has passed away and a parent or a, a family member willing to give a, a vital organ to someone who maybe needs a kidney or a heart or a transplant. But Jesus gave himself literally physically on our behalf so that we can not experience the punishment of, we will die, but the punishment of sin, which is eternal suffering and separation from Christ, from heaven, from God. And some people think, well, you know, what is hell? But let me tell you that there is a suffering and punishment. When the Bible talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, when, when you look at that and understand that there is pain and suffering, and the punishment of that. There is going to be something that is terrible, and I wouldn't want to be there, but we are grateful for what Jesus Christ has done. And this morning, we're going to look at, at that, especially the preexistence of Jesus and the role that that plays. Because as we gravitate to the personal nature of Jesus, and as we relate personally to his, his sufferings, and next week, we'll look at his temptation, but to grasp the essential nature that Jesus not only had a human nature, but he possessed a divine nature. So why don't we pray this morning and we'll dive a little bit into uh, this uh, subject. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And Jesus, we thank you that uh, you know what we faced. You went through sufferings. You went through challenges. You lived and took upon yourself a human nature. But Lord, you also had a divine nature. And that is what we look at this morning because you are God. And to, to be able to perfectly complete what needed to take place, only a divine plan could bring about the salvation of mankind. And Lord, we are grateful for who you are. And help us as we study this text, as study throughout these texts, to honor you, to lift you up. And may we be changed because of who you are. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So as we understand this, the existence of really two natures, because a human nature and a divine nature is something very foreign to us. It's not like part of the time he was Jesus and God, and part of the time he was, you know, the man Jesus. He possessed two natures at the same time, and that is similar to a concept of the Trinity. It is a concept that we can't necessarily always understand, but it doesn't mean that it is false. It is truthful. And the hypostatic union explains that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He possessed two natures. So as we look at that, 
in regards to the deity, the union of deity and humanity in one person. Sinless human nature inseparably and eternally united with divine nature. Hypostatic union, again, it's the 100% God, 100% man. Sometimes people think, oh, the hypostatic union, is that what happens, you know, when in the dryer my socks cling to one another? That's not, that's a different static cling. But two natures are distinguished but not separated. Became something new while not ceasing to be God. And humanity of Christ never had an independent existence. Just a couple other facts. Christ was not able to sin. We'll look at that later as we talk about uh, the temptation of Christ. But Christ's humanity is not independent of his deity. Christ never acts as man or as God. He acts as Christ, which equals God, manifest in the flesh. And so this morning, as we look at the importance of the preexistence of Christ, because it is important, it affects our understanding of God and the Godhead and the Trinity. It affects our belief in creation, the doctrine of salvation. See, without the preexistence of God, of Christ, there is no incarnation. And that affects our understanding of Christology. And our practice as Christians, what we believe. Because if Christ isn't who he said he was, then our faith is in vain, as Paul talks about. But the proper understanding of the preexistence of Jesus Christ recognizes the deity and eternality and separates the biblical belief from the LDS, from Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, a group called the Christadelphians, and some Church of God, and Unitarians. We believe biblically that Christ existed before he came um, in the incarnation in flesh. And so we'll look at a couple of facts before we get into the text even. First of all, if you're following along in your notes, Christ did not become divine or only partake in the divine. There are some who would say, well, Christ became divine for a period of time. Well, in Philippians 2, the kenosis passage, or the self-emptying we call it, Christ gave up the use of his divine attributes some of the time. You know, how can God, how can Jesus be everywhere? But he, he did not stop being God. And he did not just for a period of time stop becoming, um, become divine. Jesus did not become a God. He was always deity. Deity means that he was divine. He possessed the divine nature. Attributes that make God separate from everyone else. So Jesus did not become a God as some believe, oh, he was good enough and became this God. Also, Jesus was not created by God. Some take Colossians and say, oh, he was the firstborn. He was the one who became um, that God created. That is not true. That is heresy. And the Bible talks about that Jesus was always God. And we'll look at some of that. And Jesus was not only a human. He was not just a good prophet, a good teacher, a good moral example. Maybe someone said to you, oh, you're such a good person. Uh, sometimes they say that about my kids. I say, my kids aren't good. They're just well, hopefully well-behaved. But none of us are good. We try to be good, but uh, only God is good. And to understand that he was not simply only a human. He was not just a good teacher, a good example. But let's go to the book of John, and as we go through the book of John, and all those attributes as we look at, affect us because Jesus Christ is a central object of our worship because he is God. 
John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Jesus is the reason that we sing. We talk about who he is. And in the book of John, if you look at John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as I was reading over this text and passage, as we think about it, what is the beginning? The beginning of mankind, the beginning of Christianity. And in the context, John is talking about the beginning of the world. And there's actually um, repetitions that, that uh, John does throughout here. And understanding here, Jesus was one with God since eternity. Jesus was one. And the usage of the word word, it's capitalized for us to help us to understand because we think word, isn't that just a, a vocabulary word? But the word, the living word, the, literally the expression of God. And what it means is God manifests in the flesh. We use that term incarnation. But as we see the third term, Jesus is the perfect representation of God. We see that. But Jesus became flesh, and that's the incarnation, we call it. That's literally what it means, you know, incarnation. So some of those words that we get from the Greek. But to understand here, even in verse 14, as it talked about the incarnation, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Doctrinally and theologically speaking, it's difficult for us to understand God. God is a spirit. And so we relate and gravitate toward the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, because, hey, he became flesh. And so we know about who God the Father is or the, who God is through Jesus Christ. And we can relate to that. And that helps us to have a greater understanding because our faith is visible. We understand. We understand death. We understand. We don't always understand resurrection, but we can comprehend the um, subject of it. But he suffered and died and he rose again because he was God. So the incarnation coming in flesh, we can relate to other people. When people tell us a story of something sad, you know, maybe you're one of those who you hear a, a sad song or um, you're one of those who see a sad scene in a movie and you start crying. You know, I always hate that because sometimes, you know, simple weird things can affect and cause you to tear up. Or maybe you're those, one of the other individuals who it doesn't affect you. But you can relate to people's story. You root for the underdog. If you ever saw, if you're a sports fan and saw the movie um, about the small football player, and you say, Rudy, Rudy, you know, eh, be able to get on. But we root for the underdog because we can relate. We want them to win, to do well. If you're a basketball fan, you know, you have the NCAA championship, the Cinderella story, or, you know, the, the prince, but also Cinderella in basketball, the one who, who is a small team and actually come and win it all. We relate to that, their stories. The Olympics, if you think about the Olympics, that person, you hear the backstory. Well, it's the same way with Jesus Christ because we can relate to the humanity of Jesus. And that's why it's important because in that expressing who is God, God is love, God is merciful, God is just, God is forgiving, God is patient. We relate to those because we are always those characteristics. But Jesus is the perfect representation of God. And while we will never meet that standard, we can understand who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. He displays 
all the attributes. He is almighty. He is wise. He's eternal. Verse 18 in John chapter 1, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And that word versus son can mean um, understanding there's some in the text that is God. Infinite being. No one can see him as spirit in the absolute essence only through Jesus Christ. If people said, oh, you know, I saw God, you know, um, walking through and, and we won't see God. So let's look at, as we go through the book of John, we're going to look at some biblical evidence of, first of all, the pre-existence. I call it the four C's. I just came up with that, tried to alliterate to have some C's and to understand the pre-existence. And what the pre-existence of Christ means is that we understand Jesus was born of a virgin. That's an important theological concept. Sinless. But that wasn't when Jesus first began to exist. Jesus existed as God in his deity beforehand, before time began. And he didn't just start at creation. Jesus, as God, existed for eternity past. He has never stopped ceasing to exist. And so as we use the term pre-existence, it refers to his pre-existence before the time on earth. So let's look at a couple of these. First of all, biblical evidence. Okay, in John 1.15, as we look at John 1.15, it says, John bore witness of him, referring to Jesus, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, if you're confused reading that, before, after, before, it's referring to the ministry of John the Baptist, and John, bore, John the apostle is talking about John the Baptist, who John bore witness of him and cried out before him, this is he, Jesus, whom I said, he who comes before me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Okay, so John the Baptist is actually older than Jesus as he his incarnation. But yet he says, guess what? This is the one, the chosen one. He, went, he was the forerunner and said, guess what? Behind me is something, someone coming who I'm not even worthy to lace his shoes. And while we wouldn't understand that, remember, that's the lowest servant in the household who washed the feet. But guess what? Someone is coming who is greater than I, and he will save the people from their sins. And that's where John, John and John, both of them declare, for he was before me. Literally, he existed before I was ever around. And if we think about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. But remember, the whole point, if you've read the book or studied the book of John, there is a great emphasis of the deity of Christ because of what was taking place at that time. And that's why it's different from some of the other um, books, as we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic gospels. And so synoptics literally means a synopsis, not, oh, give me a synopsis, but a perspective. People see from different perspective. John has read the other ones, and so he gives a perspective, and his emphasis in all of the book is on the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. There's some great declarations, John 10.30. But understanding here, John 1.15, and then also John 1.30, where he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again, makes that declaration. And oftentimes in our Bible, that word man is 
uh, capitalized to understand that it wasn't just a human. Referring to that deity. In John 17.5, if you hold that spot, understanding going a little further. In John 17.5, it states and says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the high priestly prayer in the garden of um, the garden that Jesus prays. And he declares and says, glorify me when I was with you before the creation or the existence of the world. And what we have here is the contradictory chronology because it contradicts the chronology of what should be. As we see chronology, age is a difference. And now age isn't as respected as it was before. Those who are senior in age, different terms have come about, but the respect of those of our elders. And sometimes that respect isn't exhibited well in our society. In fact, with euthanasia, sometimes our society looks at age and says, well, if you're not contributing to society, you shouldn't exist. But biblically speaking, we believe in the value of life. And to understand here the chronology, how can this be contradictory? Because Jesus came to earth at a certain time, but yet his existence was before that. So it contradicts as we see it, understanding in the, in the chronology. But Jesus existed before the existence of time. And while we relate to the fact described in Luke 2 that Jesus was born, he grew in stature and wisdom and knowledge, we must also recognize that our chronological understanding of Jesus must not limit him in his knowledge or in his understanding of the existence at one point in time. See, there are dates in our lives that are formed and cemented into our lives as being an important time. Maybe you might not deem it as an important date, but the date that you were born. That was an important time. Some of you might know it. Some of you might not know it. Some of you might try to forget when that was. But that is an important point in time for you because otherwise you wouldn't exist. Maybe the birth of a child. Maybe a marriage. Maybe a graduation. Maybe 9-11. There are certain events in time that are stuck in our minds. I remember, you know, talking about the shooting of JFK. I'm not old enough for that, but I understand historically when it occurred. Events in time... Um, the, when the space shuttle blew up and Christy McAuliffe, different things. And each generation is going to have different events that are, if you will, frozen in time in our minds that we will remember. Some are good, some are bad, but we live by dates. What is to come? What will take place? Celebration. Some of it's just simply, oh, it means a day off. But as we look at the chronology, Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever, as it talks about in Hebrews 13. He existed before time began, and he knows what is taking place with current events in the world. And so that helps us because understanding the preexistence of Christ, he is in control. And he knows what is going on in the world and in our lives. He knows when we mess up. He knows our successes. He knows our failures. He knows our strengths and he knows our weaknesses, his omniscience. He knows what has happened in the past and he knows what will happen in the future. 
That gives us confidence in knowing that pre-existent Christ, he knows and he is part of what is going on. He's not just simply part of what takes place in chronology, in the existence of time. He is separate from time, space, and matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the, and the earth. Time, space, and matter. Jesus is separate from that. And we can have confidence in him because of that. We can trust him that he has a plan. While it's not ours, he knows what he is doing in every detail, and it's under his control. Sometimes we look at what is taking place in the world, and we wonder, why does God allow this? But we only see it from our limited perspective. And that's the challenge with chronology. Because, well, if we aren't aware of history, obviously what occurs is that sometimes we're destined to repeat it, right? But there's those who deny history or try to change what took place in the past. But to understand that Jesus existed beforehand. And we must not be anxious or faithless, but seek each day to grow and exhibit our faith to others around us. As we get closer and closer to the time of Jesus' return, really we don't know how much time we have on this earth. Our lives are, are like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. And honestly, we could complete great things in this world, but you know what? We're quickly forgotten. But the Bible says that all the things that are accomplished for the glory of Christ will not be forgotten. We are his witnesses, but only for a limited amount of time. And how long we have on this earth has not been revealed to us. You know, what will we do at that time? Because we must redeem that time. But not only contradictory chronology, sorry, they are kind of a tongue twister, but a celestial change. In John 3.13, it states and says, 3.13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. See, Jesus left heaven. And for us, we look at, uh, okay, let's see, geographically or, or understanding, it's above us. John 6.33, it talks about and says, Reading that, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he goes on, and and many of these passages talk about the bread of heaven coming down all throughout in John chapter 6. Even in 50, it says, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. For I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Some people read this and says, are Christians cannibals? But understanding here in the context, the bread of heaven who partakes in Jesus Christ can have possess eternal life. This is something totally new. But going back, he's who John is speaking to and understanding his audience. The Jews understand that and to become the bread of life. Literally, that you can be sustained. How long can we go without eating? You know, someone say, oh, I could go a couple weeks. But you know what? It's hard. We could not, if without food, we will die. But Jesus came from earth to heaven and then also returned to heaven. And as we understand the preexistence of Jesus Christ is a reminder to us that while Jesus is not of this world, we will also not be in this world forever. We will someday be removed from our sin-cursed bodies and possess a new body and be transformed with the help 
of the divine nature. It talks about partaking in the divine nature. See, Jesus came from heaven and came to earth, and he revealed himself to mankind, and his presence, his presence appeared to mankind. And so there's a difference between what's called the presence and the residence of God, where he is. His home is in heaven, but he has appeared, presence, for a period of time so that people could actually be able to see. And as you think about Thomas, here, touch here, the physical body of Christ. That's amazing. And the scars in his hands. And Jesus is the one who possesses the new body. And so therefore we can have that hope and promise that one day we will possess a new body. Because tell you what, these bodies, they wear out. And to have a heavenly body. And the only way to have a heavenly body is to be removed out of this body. So as believers, while we're scared of death, we can also have confidence in death to be absent in this physical body is to be present with the Lord. There won't be aches and pains. You know, there won't be stubbing your toe. There'll be a difference in that new body. And Jesus Christ, he possesses the marks on his body, the scars on his hands, feet inside, the celestial change. So we must not be conformed to this world, but understand that we need our minds renewed daily. We must learn to live with heaven in mind, this celestial change. It's a reminder, the preexistence of Christ, that he came from heaven because he's God, but he's also returned there. Someday he's coming back because he is God. And we must learn to live with heaven in mind and not for the pleasures or demands of the world. We must pray daily and ask God to help us remember that we are citizens of heaven and not of earth. And that preexistence of Christ is a reminder to us that guess what? This world is not going to last forever. Last uh, week we had the opportunity to go to the uh, Creation Museum and the Ark down in Kentucky. And it was neat because one of the, um, in the, um, planetarium. You lay back in these really comfortable chairs and you're almost flat and you think, oh, good place to go to sleep. But it gives you a picture of how vast the universe is. You know, light years. We can't even comprehend the magnitude of how far away things are. I mean, half the time we're like, man, I'm not going to go to the grocery store. I don't want to go there because it's too far away, you know, a mile away, three miles away. And even if you lived back east, how many of you live back east? You know, oftentimes, if you live back east, you know, it was far if you had to go an hour away. You know, Arizona, it's like, oh, no big deal. You know, I'm going to go four hours, five and a half hours, no big deal. But back east, you know, half the time, I grew up in upstate New York, Washington, D.C., like five hours away. Oh, that's too far. You know, you never go. You travel distances. We have this concept. But they'll travel 24 hours down to Florida. So, I mean, it all depends on what takes place or what our motives are. But the celestial change, understanding is heaven. Someday, you know, we will be able to be in heaven. And we are not citizens of heaven, or excuse me, citizens of earth, but that we are citizens of heaven. So the next thing we want to look at as far as the preexistence of Christ is Christ's claims. In John 8.58, which is an important passage, an important text, in John 8.58, Jesus says, states, Jesus said to them, Moses assuredly said, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you might think, what kind of grammarian was Jesus? Because that's not the correct tense or presence in grammar. And even Paul talks about and uses that term. 
um, I am, but um, in reference to Jesus, but I am. What that means is that is the name that the Jews understood, the Hebrews understood that God took back in the time of Moses. And this was the personal name of God back in Exodus 3.14. Moses is there and he's before the burning bush. He's like, wait a second, I can't go back. The Hebrews won't follow me. Who should I say sent me? And that's where the voice says to him and says, tell them the I am sent you. And here Jesus claims to be, say that he is the I am. And back prior in chapters, chapter um, 8, verse 24, if you look at that, it says, there, um, starting in verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, referring to the Jesus, the Savior, who is God. End of verse 28, where he says again, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father t taught me, and I speak these things. I am he. He's declaring, and his the Jews there understanding that to take that name of I am, Yahweh, and it is, it is blasphemy. That's why they wanted to stone him. But Christ claimed, and Jesus is God. He deserves all our praise and honor and worship that is due God. He has the right to receive worship. He has the right and ability to forgive our sins, and he has the right to rule. See, we must submit our lives and desires to his perfect plan and understand that he can use us in any way he chooses. We must never let our circumstances dictate our actions. And that's a challenge because how we respond, emotionally or weak. But we must submit our lives and desires to his perfect plan. And we must obey and respond to our circumstances as a proper child of God would behave, even if we do not have a good track record. Maybe in the past, we're put in a similar situation, and in the past, you failed. But God has put you in similar situations, and he has given you everything you need to succeed. And that is the confidence that we have. There's no temptation taken, but as such as common demand, but God will, with the temptation, will provide a way that you may be able to escape. Bear. What that means is, in that term, temptation, understanding is the difference between, and I'll probably discuss this later, a temptation and a test. See, Satan tempts us, but the intent is to fail. Jesus tests us with the ability to be able to succeed. If, if you were in school, whether you're homeschooled or, or in school, you probably have had tests. And tests, the intent of most teachers giving you a test is not to make you fail. There are some teachers, like professors, that give you hard tests, and probably some of you might not pass, but the intent of tests is to see how much you know and hopefully to pass and, and to do well. Some of you are like, oh, I hate tests. But the intent of tests were to test your knowledge and be able to do well. The intent of Christ's test was for you to express the glory of God through your actions and be able to respond in a way which will bring honor to him, but also to demonstrate that you are a child of God, that he cares about you. And here, as we talk about this personal relationship with Jesus, we must give him both the control and priority in our lives. 
It is a literally dying to self and living for Christ. We must allow Jesus Christ the absolute authority no matter what we go through. And that's not always easy. Because if you're like me, sometimes we like to control our circumstances. We want things a certain way. We like that. It gives us a sense of balance. It gives us a sense of, oh, you know, we're in control of something. Maybe some of you like chaotic situations. You know, and that's okay too. But, you know, certain things organized. You know, some of us like organized things in order, you know, or, or a certain type of order. Your order might not be the way of someone else's order. We're all different. But to understand here, the desire for ourselves to take control of a situation, to fix. A lot of, some people, you know, they like to problem solve, to fix things, because it gives us instant gratification. It, hey, this is, this is good. We have order and peace. But sometimes God rocks our world and says, guess what? There is no order. There is no control. And what that does is it causes us to either affect our salvation, become weak, and turn away from God, and to allow pride to take over, or it drives us to God and understand, God, you're in control. You have, a, you have a purpose in this. I don't understand it, but I'm going to try to behave and respond in a way which will honor you. Even when difficult things happen in our life, divorce, death, illness, loss of jobs, loss of economics. And oftentimes, we are, we are affected spiritually. But I'm telling you, we must trust him. He is in control and his claims. And he gets the glory, then it will be good. And the last thing we look at is the co-eternal creator. He is the co-eternal creator. And what that means is in John 1, 1 through 4, as I read uh, verses 1, where it says, Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Understanding here that Jesus, and even in Colossians 1.16, that he created all things. Jesus existed when the world and all of creation came into existence. It's a reminder that the pre-existence God, that we should not limit the power of Jesus. And be careful in our vocabulary because sometimes we just emphasize only Jesus as human. We often view Jesus as being submissive to the Father yet fail to remember that Jesus possessed the power and fullness of the Godhead. He is fully God and can utilize that power, which is rightfully his. God knows all of creation and has the power to subdue it and rule it in perfect justice and righteousness. See, the challenge is we don't always believe that God can change our circumstances. We focus inward. And we try to fix it ourselves, and then finally, God, if you can do it, go ahead. We believe that God can be born of a virgin. We believe that Jesus can be born of a virgin, virgin, live a sinful life, raise people from the dead, give us eternal life, but then we don't we pray, oh God, if you can meet this need. And I'm not saying name it and claim it. That is erroneous, that is biblical heresy. But what I'm saying is pray in faith, because we don't know what God is going to do. 
But we can pray with confidence of knowing that, God, you're in control, and I would ask that you would do this. But if he doesn't do it, we don't say, well, God, you didn't do what I wanted, so I'm not going to believe in you anymore. We don't know what his will is. If we look at the example of David, and David prayed in such a way for his son, Bathsheba, who was born illegitimately, but yet he prayed because he said, God, you are a merciful God, and I didn't know what you would do. But when it didn't come about, he didn't pout and say, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Because sometimes that's how we are, little kids. You know, even though we're taller and older, we're still little kids. But yet, David cleaned himself up and responded because he understood that God was in control and sovereign. But he still behaved and acted in a way that God could have preserved that child's life. And that's how we need to pray and understand and believe. See, we fail to trust God can provide for our finances. We don't believe that God can heal us or keep us safe. We must balance the sovereignty of God with the plan of God. See, God doesn't always choose to heal. God doesn't always choose to meet our financial needs, repair our relationships, help us or our loved ones turn away from sin. But that does not mean that we should, not, that we, we should pray in doubt. We must believe that Jesus, who created all things, may choose to heal that sick child, do a miraculous work in the life of one who truly needs a miracle, help that person who is living away from God, full of sin. We must remember that is, what we must remember is that we do not know what God will do, but we can pray to the God who has the power to change those circumstances. So we must believe. And in closing, as we look at the pre-existent Jesus, who is God, he wants us to understand what it means to live for him. And are you willing to follow Jesus? Because too often we do not understand who Jesus is, and many who believe that he's just human. Oh, God is love, you know, God will help in this situation. But we think that we can do it on our own. And when we truly understand that Jesus is God and that he existed before time began, we can trust him with our lives, with our needs, with our future in all circumstances. Praise and worship Jesus as Christ today. Shall we pray?